The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Good morning, church family. Good to see you this morning. I like the new decorations. I don't know what Shiny was kidding about. I think we should keep them, don't you? It's, uh, it's, it's so much fun. I am, uh, of course, this is my first day camp, my, my third week here, right? So, of course, it's my first day camp, and I'm excited for it. And I would, I would just ask you, as you think of, of the camp this week and the hundreds of kids and the volunteers who will be here, would you commit to one thing? And this is what our team has been doing for weeks as we've been thinking of camp coming up. Would you pray that God would move amongst the people here? Our hope with doing this day camp, and I know why Shawnee leads it and why there's so many volunteers here, is not just so that kids would have a fun time. That's important. We want kids to have a fun time. It's not just that they could get out of the house for three hours. Moms and dads, you're like, yes, please take my kids for just a couple hours. Yeah, like, yes, that's good too. But our desire and our hope is that lives would be changed for eternity because of what happens at day camp here next week. And so as you think of the camp, whether you're here in person or you just drive by the church or the spirit just prompts you, would you just pray? Pray that the Holy Spirit would work and that the lives would be changed for eternity because of the work that Jesus can and will do this next week at camp. We are, we're excited that, that we have such a great opportunity as a church to minister to so many kids. Let me pray for us again as we, as we open God's word. God, we do thank you that you are a God who is ever present with your people, a help in time of need. And God, we do ask for, for our camp this upcoming week, God, we ask that you would work powerfully as only you can. God, and use the volunteers, use the leaders. We thank you for their service. Would you give them all they need to represent you well this upcoming week? And God, would you be with us now as we turn to scripture, God? Would you challenge, confront, convict, comfort? Would you use your word this morning to meet our each and every need? Because God, we do acknowledge we need you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are obstacles, barriers, barricades, if you were, in any relationship between two people. Right? If you were to look at Hollywood, you would think that what it means to have a good relationship is you just find that person that fits absolutely perfect with you. There's no arguments, there's no fights, and you live happily ever after. And if you've been in a relationship for more than about two weeks, you know that's not true. That's not true. I still, uh, I still remember when, when Kristen and I were engaged, we sat down with a pastor who was officiating our wedding, and, and he asked us, uh, had your first fight? And we just smiled at him and smiled at each other. We were like, we are very different people from very different backgrounds who were very honest with each other. So that created a lot of conflict over, over the years, right? And, and the, the point of a healthy relationship is not that things work together and there's no obstacles, but that both people are moving together. Both parties are doing what they can in their power to overcome these obstacles. That's what a healthy relationship is. And there are obstacles in our relationship in coming to Jesus as well. 
And we're gonna look at this story today in the gospel of John chapter five. And we're gonna look at four obstacles that are present in coming to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to the gospel of John chapter five? It's also in the handout uh, that you received when you came this morning. And we are in the middle of a series. This is our third week of a series looking at the signs of Jesus in the gospel of John. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus turning water into wine. Last week, it was Jesus healing the official son. And the story that we're going to look at today immediately follows. We left off at the end of chapter four, and we pick up right after it in chapter five today. But it is a very different story for us than it was the one last week. So starting in chapter five, verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know particularly which feast this is. Later on in the Gospel of John, he often structures his writing around the different feasts that the Jews observed. And we don't know exactly which one it is because it doesn't tie in exactly to the text that's going to follow. But John just wants to let us know this is the occasion now for Jesus to go from Galilee down into Jerusalem. Verse two, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This pool still exists today. Archaeologists have found it. And if you've gone to Jerusalem before, like I had the privilege of doing many years ago, you can go and visit it and you can see where this miracle occurred. You can see these pools. And there was a superstition, most likely, that that had come across why so many people had flocked to this area to seek healing. Most likely, there was an underground spring that fed into the pool. So from time to time, the water would kind of bubble and turn over. Well, They don't know how it started, but at one point, someone had gotten in and said they were healed when the water turned over. And it doesn't take long like this for superstition to start going. If you're the first one in, then you will be healed. Some saw it was an angel. It most likely was just this superstition. And this same thing kind of arrives today, right? I remember years ago um, in Chicago when there was salt stains underneath one of the highway and it looked like Mary. And there was like hundreds of people would flock to it and pray to it and pray for healing from it. And we're like, we're so sophisticated these days. No, we aren't. We do the exact same thing, right? When superstition starts going, everyone started flocking to it. And so they're there hoping to be healed, not just a few people, but blind, lame, paralyzed. The the idea would be there'd be even more than this. A, a, A variety of people with physical illnesses are here hoping to be healed. Verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, which is a long time, especially considering the average lifespan of a person in the biblical time was around 40 years old. So this would have been an elderly gentleman who had been afflicted with a disease for many, many years, most likely was paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Jesus asks these questions all throughout the gospels. And and the man looks at him in verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps before me. 
One commentator wrote about this man's response. It may, in some sense, seem genuine, but when we see his reactions to Jesus throughout the passage, the commentator wrote this. This is most likely the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. This would be like wandering around at a hospital to someone who's undergoing a cancer treatment area and being like, hey, do you want to be healed? And it'd be like, look, he'd be like, no more. And that's why I'm here getting treatment because I don't, of course I want to be healed. The guy's like, are you an idiot? I've been here for this many years because I want to be healed. Why are you asking this question? But then he, he gives some insight into his own condition that, that he's not able to do it himself and that he does not have people there to help him to get into the water. This first obstacle in coming to Jesus that we see in this passage is our own helplessness. The first obstacle to coming to Jesus is our own helplessness. Just as this man was physically helpless, could not go for his own healing, we too must realize about our own spiritual condition that apart from Jesus, we are helpless. We are helpless on our own. When you read through, if you were to read through the New Testament, which is the the gospels and then most of the New Testament are letters or what we call epistles after this book of John. When you read through it, it's striking how in so many of those letters, they start with the utterly bad news of the human condition apart from Jesus. It talks about how bad we are sinners. It talks about how the world has fallen. Over and over again, that's how these letters start out before getting to the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Because the Bible teaches consistently and throughout, if we do not understand the status of our souls apart from Jesus, we will never understand our true desperate need for him and that we are helpless apart from him. The Bible uses terms that we are lost and need to be found by Jesus. In Ephesians, it says that we are spiritually dead. Dead, not weak, not stumbling, not crawling, but we are dead. We are helpless on our own. And in coming lies our own condition that we are helpless without him. Well, my wife and I are in that stage of parenting where Aria is now, she'll be 14 months old this upcoming week. And she is in that exploration stage where everything is an adventure and to explore. And the most exciting things seem to be the kitchen cabinets that she just wants to open. And man, if she can get into one, you better not have anything valuable or small in there because it's, it's all coming out and she loves to just explore. And so being a good parent or in her mind, a horrible parent, what we do is we put up these horrible things called child locks on it, which are such an obstacle to her having fun, aren't they? But it doesn't stop her from trying. Like she'll go to a cabinet that has a child lock on it and she will walk up to it and grab hold of it and she will yank and it gets nowhere. And so she'll like look and she'll turn to the side and she'll pull harder and it'll be nowhere. And then she'll do two hands on each one and she'll like put her whole weight into it and rock it back and forth. And it doesn't move. And then when she gets serious, she starts to grunt. That toddler grunt. She's trying and you can watch her and it's kind of funny, right? Because you're like, hey, hey kid, you can try all you want you're not going to get it on your own, right? You can't reach that little button that I can where you just push it and it magically opens, but it doesn't stop her from trying. She has the desire, she has the determination, but she can't get it on her own. 
that hopeless effort of trying but being guaranteed a failure is what we look like trying to get to Jesus on our own. We may have the desire to want to do it. We may have the determination. We just want to keep working hard and hard and hard. But until we realize that we are helpless on our own, we will never have a relationship with him. To experience healing, not just physical healing like this man was seeking, but healing for our souls, we must admit that we are powerless on our own. We must be honest with ourselves about our own spiritual condition that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And this is part of the beauty of Christianity is that it's not about our own human effort, our own human disciplines and working hard enough to find favor with God, but that we admit that we are helpless without him and that we need his help. So the man cries out, Yes, of course, I want to be healed. What are you doing, Jesus? Of course, this is why I'm here. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. Verse nine, and at once the man was healed. At once, immediately the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And I don't think it'd be taking too much liberties with the text to say, and then he probably jumped. And then he probably screamed. And then he started running around and giving hugs to people. And he was so excited. He was like doing like, oh, here's my man. He's running around showing it. And in the midst of the excitement, he kind of runs away to go probably find his friends, find his family. And he's so excited about the healing that's taken place in his life. He has no idea who he just encountered. We'll get to it in a second, the context of it. But look, people ask him in verse 12. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, Jesus withdrew, but before that, the man was so overexcited, he just left and didn't even look to see who it was. He didn't even ask who had just changed his life. See, the second obstacle to faith that we see, or the second obstacle to coming to Jesus is our own selfishness. Our own selfishness is an obstacle to coming to Jesus. See, the purpose of the signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John are for our belief. Jesus does signs so that belief may flow from it. We've seen this the last two weeks. In John chapter 2, verse 11, after Jesus turns water into wine, it says that his disciples believed in him. This week in John chapter 4, this official who was seeking healing for his son, it says in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. In fact, near the end of the Gospel of John, when he summarizes the purpose of his book in John 20, verses 30 to 31, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. These aren't the only seven that we're gonna look at. He did many others, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus does these signs that they would lead to belief. And they go and ask this man, who is it who, who healed you? Who is it who did this miraculous sign? And he's like, I don't know. Who was that guy? What did he look like? I don't even know if I could pick him out of a lineup. I don't, I, I don't even know. He, he does not even not have belief. He doesn't even know who healed him. 
He was so focused on himself, he didn't even see Jesus in the situation. This idea keeps coming up over and over again, right? Of someone using God for themselves and their own selfish purposes and not to worship him, not to see him for who he truly is. Perhaps God's teaching us something, right? This came up last week in the passage we looked at. This came up a few weeks before when Ricky preached on the same thing, that that God is not a God just to be used for our own selfish purposes and then set aside, but that God is a God to be worshiped for who he truly is. See, he was selfish in that he was so rejoicing over his own healing, he didn't see who Jesus was. And this selfishness is seen in his life and selfishness is so often seen in our lives by a lack of thankfulness and gratitude. Selfishness is so often seen by a lack of thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts. Because what should have been the first thing that he did when he could get up and walk? It should have again, again, to bow down at Jesus's feet. That should have been the first thing he did. Right, as to say thank you, to pour out his thankfulness, but we, just like him, are so quick to need things, but then to so slow to acknowledge when God provides. I mentioned last week that I, I grew up um, racing mountain bikes a lot. And I loved racing. I, I was actually pretty good at it. Some of it helps that I was as tall as I am now when I was 13 years old. So I was quite good in junior high. Little did I know the peak of my athletic achievements would come as a 14-year-old. I had visions of grandeur. God had visions of humility for my life. But I would get extremely nervous before races. Like I couldn't eat. I thought I was going to lose the things I did eat before a race was going to start. And so I had to think just to try and help calm me down as you're kind of waiting in the starting pen about to go up. You kind of see the clock. You know you have a few minutes left. As I would just close my eyes and I would pray. All right, God, just keep me safe. God, right, I would, I would just pray. I would do this almost every single race. And then it hit me at one point how quick I was to ask God for help. But after the race, when God would keep me safe, when God would do all these things, how slow I was afterwards to thank him. See, I would cross the finish line and be like, ah, yeah, I did a really good job today. Do y'all see how fast I was? Look at all this. And there was no thankfulness in response to what God had done for me. See, so often we pray and we ask so quickly, but we are so slow to acknowledge and to give thanks for what God has given to us. See, thankfulness is not just an attitude of our hearts in the good times, but also it should be for the Christian in every situation of life. That's why Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Just think back to your past week, just the last seven days since we gathered here at church on Sunday. Think back to what you've been praying for. Does thankfulness mark your prayers? Are you, is gratitude towards God a consistent theme in your life this last week as you've been seeking God? Or are we too often viewing God like an ATM machine or a vending machine? God, I need this. God, I need this. God, give me this. And we're so slow to be thankful for what he's done. It exposes the selfishness in our own hearts that we so often view God just for what he can do for us. This man was so selfish, he didn't even see God at work. He just saw his own healing. The story continues 
in verse nine, he took up his bed and walked. And then this little add-on, and now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed. Now the Jews here, this is not a word just for the people, the Jewish people who live in Israel, but specific to the Jewish leaders, often known as likely the Pharisees in other passages of the Bible. So the Jewish, the religious leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Notice the, like, the finger pointing. Don't blame me, blame the other guy. 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So the story starts to shift and then there's this conflict because we get a little more context into this miracle that it was done on the Sabbath. And in that we see this third obstacle in coming to Jesus that the Pharisees display for us. And that third obstacle is our own standards. Our own standards. See, we, we need to, to understand what's going on in this passage. It's, it's necessary for us to understand the difference between the biblical law and the tradition of the Pharisees or, or how they interpreted the law. In the biblical law, to, to keep the Sabbath holy meant that typically you would go away from your customary employment and it would be a day of refreshment and restoration for yourself and God and then you and your closest relationships next to you. But you would set aside your customary employment to do it. So what the Pharisees did, because they wanted to honor the Sabbath in their oral tradition to help interpret the law that God had given, right? Keep the Sabbath holy, they put in all these different rules to make sure the one rule wasn't broken, including in these rules, get this, were 39 different things that they considered work and were no longer able to do on the Sabbath. One of those things, the 39 different classes that the Pharisees instituted was taking, picking up something and moving it from one place to another was considered work and not to be done on the Sabbath. So when they point the finger at this man, and say, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. What they're saying is, we don't think it's right for you to, even though it doesn't break what the Bible says. It's, that's key for us to get. They're pointing to their own tradition. He actually isn't sinning. He's not breaking what the Bible says. See, this miracle happens. And here are these people who look like nice church-going folks who carry their Bibles who would be looked at as the esteemed people in the community. They would be much highly respected. We now, if, you're, if you've been in church for a while, if you've been a Christian, we kind of looked down on the Pharisees, like Psh, no one would have liked those guys. And this time, everyone liked them. They were the role models. They're like, look at, look at these people and the wisdom and the passion that they have. They were so highly respected, yet their life became revolving around these man-made rules and they had such strict standards of what God could and couldn't do that it was hindering people from seeing who Jesus truly was. So how do we do this today? Because most likely in churches today, we're not gonna yell at someone because they picked up a chair and moved it. We're gonna scream at them. It's Sunday, you shouldn't move a chair. Like, I think, I think that's not the big thing that we have, but we still have tendencies towards legalism like this in our own hearts and in our own lives today. In our own lives today, in the church world, so often we care more about rule following than relationship. We care a lot more about rule following than relationship. 
I think one of the ways that, that this is so, so evidently seen, I think so shockingly seen to other people who aren't Christians, is when a well-known person, say a celebrity, comes out and says that they are a follower of Jesus. What immediately happens is that every Christian then pounces on them for every sin they've ever done and asks, well, how dare they ever do anything like this? And we hold these people to this extremely high standard that we would never hold ourselves to. Because we look at all these different rules and say, well, they've done this before, they've done this, are they gonna start doing this? And we don't see that they're now in a relationship with Jesus, but we just focus on the rules of religion. And we evaluate others with things we would never hold ourselves to. But I think what's so true for these Jewish leaders and is sadly so true for many in the church today is that their attitudes stand out so strong and that it's this, their attitudes are marked by arrogance and pride. Their attitudes are marked by arrogance and pride. They were so certain that they knew exactly what God meant, that they had no problem going up to anyone and refuting the smallest thing in their life because they knew exactly what God said, 100%, no questions about it. No one is alive like that today, right? Who's so certain that they are so right on every single thing and they are so quick to point out the faults in every other person. They know the exact specific meaning of every biblical passage and text that theologians have debated for centuries, but they know the right interpretation of it. The things that church history Christians have disagreed about for hundreds of years, they know the essential theological argument and that if you are not this the specific view, then you are wrong. You're not a true Christian. I heard many years ago, I don't remember where it was, but I heard many years ago, it said, someone said, you should just assume in your life, you're probably wrong about five to 10% of the things you believe. Hold it loosely. There's, there's probably things that you, you're wrong about. Have a humility about you and your own beliefs. Now, this isn't to mean like if someone comes and is like, Jesus isn't God, he should be worshiped. We're like, well, that's a good point. Let me think about it. I'm not, I'm not saying that we have no absolute convictions and beliefs. Of course we do. Of course we should as Christians. But I love what one commentator, D.A. Carson said in writing on this passage. He said this, in religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. In religious matters, there's no one so blind as someone who is so certain that they always see. And I believe if our study of scripture causes us to be arrogant, closed-minded, and harsh with those we disagree with, we need to go back to scripture because we haven't gotten what it really says. If arrogance starts to mark our hearts and if we're making these different standards for what a true Christian looks like that exceeds what the Bible teaches, we need to go back to what God's word says. And this is easy for us to do if you've been a part of the church. I've been in the church my entire life. And it's easy to do this towards others. Legalism creeps into our hearts. We judge others by a standard that we would never judge ourselves by. We have an arrogance about our life, our position, what we believe. And that actually hinders others. It's an obstacle to people coming to faith, our own standards that we need to set aside. Make sure that what we truly believe and hold firm to is what God clearly teaches. That we shouldn't be marked by arrogance, but by humility. 
So these men come, they confront him in such a harsh and demeaning way. And he kind of points the finger at Jesus, right? He, he's like, I, I don't know who he was, but, but he's disappeared. It's that guy's fault. Verse 14, afterward, probably the same day, but sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Yeah, this guy's, he's kind of a shady character, right? Like verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. The fourth obstacle in coming to Jesus that we see in this passage is our own suffering. Our own suffering is often an obstacle that stops, that gets in the way of us coming to Jesus. See, this text takes a twist with Jesus's statement. He finds the man, that's not uncommon for Jesus to do later on. He's done that multiple times in the gospels. He finds him and says, see, you are well. It's kind of like looking at the guy like, hey, remember me? Remember me? There's probably like this light on the guy's face like, oh, okay, this is who it was, right? You are well. Sin no more. He says that regularly to people who, who he's healed, who he's encountered. Go, go and leave your life of sin. Follow after me. But then this last phrase, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, what we have to dive into, because Jesus goes, there is this relationship between sin and suffering in our lives and in our worlds. Now, in a broad sense, in a very broad sense, all suffering in this world is a result of sin. In a very broad sense, all suffering is a result of sin. Before sin entered into the world, there was no conflict. Everything was at peace. It was harmony with each other. In eternity, in the future, when Jesus comes and restores all things as they rightfully should be, one day we look forward to a day where there will be no more sin. And because of that, there will be no more suffering, no tears, no death no pain. We look forward to that day. And so in a broad sense, because sin has entered the world, suffering exists in the world. But two specific comments, we need to make sure that suffering is a direct result of sin. Not all suffering is a direct result of sin. The disciples probably overheard this, and we're going to see this story in a few weeks in the sixth sign, when they encounter a man born blind. And the disciples go to Jesus and they literally ask Jesus this question, hey, who's the sinner, this guy or his parents? And Jesus goes, neither. The disciples are like, wait, wait, what? Like he blew their theological categories. Not all suffering is a direct result of sin. It's dangerous for us in our own lives and it's even more dangerous when we look at others and try and draw direct lines of behavior to suffering in their lives. Not all suffering is because of sin, but... Secondly, Jesus clearly teaches here that some suffering in our lives is a direct result of sin in our lives. Some suffering in our lives is a direct result of sin in our lives. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, meaning that this disease, this affliction you've had was brought on because of sin in your life. Jesus removes his ailment, his physical, his physical harm and invites him now into relationship, into holy living with him. 
just to be clear again, it is not for us to determine which of these two categories other people's suffering fall into. And we sound ridiculous and harsh and arrogant when we so rightfully know why others are suffering. But what this, this points to, I believe, when Jesus sees this man who, because of his sin, has been suffering for so long, but did not turn to him, and he goes, has to go back and call to him again, is that suffering in our lives often causes us either to turn to Jesus or to turn away from Jesus. Suffering in our lives often brings about either two responses. It helps us to draw closer to him or it pushes us away from him. Think of two people. Right now in my head, I'm thinking of two physical people who I knew, who got cancer, both bad diagnosis, young, healthy, unexpected. One draws close to Jesus, speaks of her great faith and how she doesn't know how she could get through each day if it weren't for the love of Jesus to hold her and sustain her. And she draws closer to God because of the suffering that she encounters. Another, same diagnosis and says, no, God's trying to kill me. I'm gonna stay alive because of my own hard work. How dare God give me this disease? Two people, exact, almost same diagnosis, entirely different responses. See, suffering is to draw us to Jesus, no matter the situation. Some of us today here have experienced profound hardship and suffering in our lives. Deep pain and sorrow that only those closest to you know, and maybe suffering that only you yourself know that you've never shared with others. I'm certainly not here to tell you if it's because of your sin or if it's just regular suffering in the world. I don't know. Only God does. I don't know. But what often happens in suffering in our lives is it can cause us to close off our hearts from Jesus, to hold on to bitterness, to resentment, to anger, to not trust God because of the painful circumstances of our life that we've walked through. Jesus encounters this man and says, you've been through so much suffering, so much pain. It was meant to point you to me. So now would you follow after me? See, for a lot of us, our past is filled with so much hurt and pain that that suffering is such an obstacle for us to come to Jesus. It's hard to give that up to him. But forgiveness, true healing, restoration, and hope is found not in running from, but in running to Jesus. That's where true healing, true forgiveness, true restoration is found from the hurts, the pains of our past. Not in holding on in bitterness and anger, but in running to Jesus and experiencing the healing that only he can bring into our lives. Jesus asked this man a profound, but very simple question. Do you want to be healed? And he asks us that question today. Do you want to be healed? Not a physical healing, but the healing of our souls, of our relationship with God that has been disjointed because of sin. See, Jesus has done all that he can do to have a relationship with us. That obstacle of our own helplessness, that's why Jesus came, because he saw us in our sin. So he came, lived a perfect life, which we could not do, died a death that we deserved, rose from the dead, defeated death so that we could know him. He's done all he can to move towards us. 
And the call to us today is, do we want that healing that he graciously provides to each and every one of us? If we would simply believe, if we would simply trust in him, the healing, the hope, the forgiveness that we could experience is beyond what we will ever understand. So if you're here today, you're hurting, you're holding on to bitterness, to resentment, you're, you're stuck up with your own standards that you've been living by or holding other people to, or maybe it's your own selfishness that you don't wanna admit that you need God. Today, would you give those things up and find healing in Jesus alone? God, we thank you. We thank you that you saw our helpless state, God. And because of your love, you came to this earth and you took our place doing what only you could do so that we could have a relationship with you. God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, in our midst right now. God, many of us have such wounds from our past that it's hard. It's hard to give that over to you. It's hard to trust that in the end, you will make all things well. God, would we experience today the freedom, the hope, the healing that is only found when we run to Jesus? Would you do that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.